0: Just before we start, our book this week contains references to violence that some people might find upsetting. Hello, and a very warm welcome indeed to this gathering of the Graham Norton Book Club. We are raising the drawbridge, battening down the hatches and pulling up the rope ladder to ensure that we can spend the next while in this refuge of reading and bolt hole of books. Joining me under the rug and rusting up the cocoa is novelist and screenwriter, Sarah Collins. Hello,
1: how are you? Hello. I'm all right, Graham. How are you? Are you keeping toasty? I,
0: I'm trying. <laughs> uh, so this is an exciting time in the world of books. Uh, at the time of recording, the book Prize has not been announced, but uh, everyone's in a frenzy of anticipation.
1: Yes, and I'm in a frenzy of preparation because I've got the um, enjoyable, I hope, task of interviewing all six shortlistees in the same night oh. on the eve of the ceremony, um, which means a couple of things. It means reading six books books twice. One of them is 650 pages long. But it also means figuring out how to keep track of the three Pauls, because there are three guys named Paul on this short list of six.
0: Um, And how are you going to disguise the fact that you must have favourites?
1: I don't know, actually. It's very, very hard to disguise that. I'm going to have to be incredibly muted about the one I really love, but I shall give our listeners a clue i've already selected it for one of the previous episodes I of this season i think i know what it so is just hunt through <laughs> hunt through all those other <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Uh, well,
0: yeah. <laughs> next we speak, I'm sure we can talk about the winner. And, of course, we've already got two Booker winners on this series of the podcast, so we're we're also part of the literati here. Now, let us turn away from prizes and talk plots. Our book this time is Chain Gang All-Stars by Nana Kwame Brenya, His tale of dystopian future America where convicted criminals fight to the death, gladiator style, as a form of TV entertainment here to talk about it are govern who chose the book for us jeff Sheree and varshney hello everybody
2: hello hi hoo
0: and uh, checking in with the young people uh Cherie, you've been on dates you've been you've been out and about
2: thank you for calling me a young person <laughs> um yes i i've re-downloaded the app oh you did um, it may be not safe for work but needless to say it's going terribly
0: <laughs> <laughs> have you actually met anyone yet
2: um, yes yes I have but you know what I'd rather be in the chain gang (laughs) all-stars at this point (laughs) than in the trenches (laughs) of dating wow (laughs) more thrilling I went out to get a parcel the other day in my pajamas and then the door blew closed quite skin pee pajamas I will say because I wasn't expecting to be outside so I had to climb over my back fence with all my neighbours watching like I was some kind of burglar.
0: Did they cheer you on? No, I, I
2: think they despair of me.
0: And and who's having a problem with, with foxes? Is it you, Gavern?
3: Yeah, um, I let my garden overgrow completely, right? So all the foxes have just congregated in there now, right? We cut it down, but they still think it's their property. So you know, normally when you see a fox, they run off, don't they, right? The foxes in my garden don't run off. They calmly walk away looking at you to yeah. say, like, okay... This is her. It's <laughs> co-owned now. We've got co-ownership of the garden. So yeah. Uh, all
0: right, guys. We will come back to you to find out if Chain Gang All Stars got the thumbs up or the thumbs down. After we've spoken to Nana Kwame Brenya himself, and after Sarah has given us her three of the best. And Sarah, I believe you've also got us banged rights.
1: So I was going to go dystopian today, Graham, but I thought that was kind of obvious. And why not give myself more of a challenge? Because how many books set in prison could actually be described as enjoyable? But I do like rising to an occasion. So I think I've found three um, prison novels and Little Dorrit is not on the list.
0: Oh, <laughs> <Aww. laughs> everyone's disappointed. Um, All right. uh, Thank you very much. Oh, and while we're talking about pumped-up action heroes fighting to entertain audiences, you might recognize
4: this voice. For a number of years, my father didn't agree with my version of what it means to be used for. And I might not agree with your version when it comes down to it. But that is not the purpose of good advice. It's not to tell you what to build. It's to show you how to build and why it matters. My father passed away at the same age I was when I brought my world crashing down on me. I never had the chance to really ask him what I should do, but I have a good idea what he would have told me. Be useful, Arnold.
0: Yes, none other than the legendary bodybuilder-turned-Hollywood megastar-turned-politician and now self-help guide author Arnold Schwarzenegger, who will be telling us just how to be useful later on in Talking Books. Right, time to join the Chain Gang All-Stars. We're in America sometime in the future. Convicted murderers are offered an alternative to their life or death sentences. They can join the Criminal Action Penal Entertainment, or CAPE, program. Signing up means they travel the country as links in Chain Gangs and take part in death matches against other links, winning by killing their opponent. They can earn points to gain weapons and privileges, and if they survive in the system for three years, they get the ultimate reward, their freedom. And all of this is on TV, with audiences of millions generating huge revenues for the network, the merchandisers, and the private prison industry. At the heart of the novel, Loretta Thurwar, a so-called Grand Colossal, a chain leader who is three weeks away from her freedom, and... Hamara, Hurricane Stacks, Stacker, her teammate and lover. Around these two, we meet a varied network of characters, fellow links, all with their own tragic and violent backstories, protesters who want this bloodthirsty so-called entertainment abolished, and the executives that are creaming off the profits. The book is also shot through with real statistics about the iniquities and inequalities of the U.S. carceral system, Loretta wants to try and restore some humanity into the lives of her lynx before she leaves them. But the greedy and cynical powers that be have other ideas and drive our two protagonists towards a terrible final encounter. This is kwame Achebrenya's first full-length novel, but it's not its first writing success. His short story collection, Friday Black, came out in 2018 to much critical acclaim. In fact, Chain Gang All-Stars began life as a short story. So when we spoke, I asked him first about how the book developed from that early stage.
5: Back when it was in that form, it was just the Thurwar, the protagonist, in the arena. And some things that ended up ha- still happening in the novel had already transpired, and she was sort of reflecting, even as the crowds were sort of like raucous, and some of them were antagonizing her, and some were very much in her favor she was no longer enamored with this sort of like celebrity she had attained through this like particularly violent means. And then I really, what happened was I had to start thinking about why would so many people be so comfortable seeing a woman be tortured essentially in this way? And the only real answer was um, she had done a crime.
0: Oh, that's interesting because in the novel, it's so pivotal. So those incredible and shocking statistics about prison life and and the judicial system in America. Did you research all of that? Did you know all of that?
5: Oh, no. <laughs> I wish I was that smart to just know those things. I um, did a lot of research, tons of research. And yeah, found at almost every turn that the carceral state in America is just really shockingly brutal. As the story needed, I would discover things. But that's really how I am most of the time in general. It's like the story itself sort of guides my process. I didn't set out to write a story about prison, I guess is what I'm saying.
2: And how
0: aware were you of your audience, the reader, and their experience of those fights? Because obviously, you don't want them to enjoy the violence in the way the crowd at the battleground enjoys the violence.
5: Yeah. Or if they do, I want them, maybe I do want them to feel that, but then also be met very quickly with a condemnation or some sort of guilt about that. I I think I'm very much aware of the potential for like that sort of intoxicating nature of violence. I think the book is about that. And I do probably want them to have some of that like enjoyment. I want to implicate the reader and make them come to their own determination that, oh wait, maybe I did enjoy that. Maybe that I do have a taste for this thing that I didn't realize I would have had. And then from there, hopefully, other implications can come.
0: Now, on the, the other side of it, Gaverne has a question. He says, you know, this book can also be read as a love story. Love features heavily. Uh, it's all around. Was that a conscious choice before you started? Or did that just develop as a theme as you were writing?
5: It absolutely just developed. I very rarely choose things before I uh, do anything. I really try to let the sentences let me know. So, But it's a great question, Gaverne. Shout out to you. I mean, there's a lot of different types of love, but I think they're talking about like the romantic love. But there's more than that type of love in this book as well. I actually didn't know that the character, her name is Hamara Hurricane Stack. Stacker. I didn't even know that she was going to be such a huge part of the book, to be honest. And she really just emerged and became kind of the heart of it.
0: So that's interesting because there are, you know, there are so many characters in this book. How did you decide when you would pause and tell us more about someone?
5: Figure out structure is a big part of the novel making process. And you don't always know because you don't know the nature of the machine you're making early on in the process. But there always is intentionality. And then that intentionality shifts and grows and evolves over the course of writing the book. And so what I try to do with just the chapters in general, whether they're a new character or not, is have some level of an arc about them. And so when that arc gets something like, okay, this has been somewhat satisfied, then I can feel like as though I might be ready to move to someone else.
0: And at what stage of kind of shaping the structure of the novel did you decide that we were going to follow Singer and, and we were going to, that we needed to know the couple in that final showdown fight?
5: It's actually funny, there's this character Simon Craft and also Singer. I think I knew with some certainty once I was into the prison thing that I wanted to have some character who was in the solitary confinement. So basically Singer and Kraft are almost one person in my mind at once. But then Singer became his own person and I started to think of him in really specific ways. And I he became sort of like the reader's entrance into the system because if anyone didn't catch exactly what was happening by the time you get done with a couple of chapters of Singer, you probably will. And actually I saw a comment on Instagram or something where it was like, this book made no sense until page 74. Like, I didn't understand it. And then, she, and then another <laughs> reader said, like, everything came together for me on page 74. And I was, like, really curious. And I didn't have the book with me, but I, wait till I got back home and I saw, I was page 74 is um, Hendrik Singer Young is explicitly enrolling oh, yeah. in the K program. Yeah, And so for some people, it takes, you know, black and white, this is exactly what's going on thing.
0: Governor also wants to talk about Third Warren and and just says, you know, what complex characters there are. What was your thinking behind making the alphas in the novel, Black Women?
5: So, like I said, I had Thurwell first, and she kind of just came to me. I kind of just saw that she had access to so many different paradigms of the sort of evil, negligence, or sinister nature of the prison industrial complex. She had just so much access to that by her person. But she also, as a Black woman who's in the limelight, she speaks just like a cultural phenomenon that you can be both exalted and destroyed at once people are happy to see you win but also just as happy or more happy to see you fail the example i've been giving often is um the way america but also the world at large appreciates serena williams for example and how even in her dominance and her greatness there's like these like disrespectful like sort of just notes or these like stabs or these like, sort of reductions to her sexuality or her physical body in a way that another dominant athlete like lebron james just might not experience in that same vein and so That felt important. Then, like I said, I didn't know Stax was going to be such a huge character, but I needed someone who um, understood all those things I just described like personally. And also, I knew that Alpha, as you put it, was going to have to try to enact change in a system that they were already thriving in. That felt less likely like something a a man would do. It ended up just feeling correct for the two top people to be a woman.
0: And given that this book or as a story began not about the prison system and about reform but now presumably this book is a real conversation starter what's it like being sort of at the forefront of that campaign
5: I don't know that I'm at the forefront but I I feel very honored to be in it at all the book was like sort of my most consistent friend over the course of the seven years I was writing it and it changed me it kind of made me a better more thoughtful person and I'm grateful for it And because of it now that it's out, I've gotten the opportunity to speak to a lot of people in the space to go inside prisons and talk to writers and really be reminded that, um, you know, this is like a non-theoretical issue. This is something that matters just to be armed with that sort of knowledge and then get to be exposed by fact of the book to other people who are also in the forefront to use your term. It feels very uh, humbling. And I feel grateful because it feels uh, like something that I, believe is truly important.
0: We want to talk about, about books and their the role in your life. Uh, when did sort of books enter your life? How young were you? How old were you when you decided you you sort of loved words?
5: I was just talking about this with my sister and she claims that she taught me how to read it, and I don't necessarily <laughs> disbelieve her. I got lucky that growing up with her as my older sister, reading was kind of just cool in my house. Pretty early on, I got, you know, my parents were the kind of parents who like drop you off at the library when it opens and pick you up when it closes. I did fall in love with like manga and, and that kind of thing. And then different types of fantasy series and sci-fi stuff. Or, But I also, as soon as I became like a person with any real autonomy, uh, reading was something I was interested in.
0: I'd like to know a book that you know about, but a lot of people don't. What, what's a book that you kind of think should have had more attention?
5: I've been talking about this book a lot over the last year. Got really big recently in Canada because the author is Canadian. His name is Michael Christie. The book is called Greenwood. Really brilliant book. It starts off seemingly as though it's about an imagined future in which there's no more trees, basically. 98% of trees are have been obliterated by some like blight. But there's this particular island, and they call it like, an arboreal cathedral, where there are still trees. And of course, what happens is super rich go there to like summits or whatever. And it's about a worker in the greenwood arboreal cathedral and she cares deeply about trees. But then really what it ends up being about is um it's like a generational novel because it goes back in time through these different people who have interacted with this particular tree because its lifespan is like, you know, 300 years. It's a really good book.
0: And uh, finally, just a book that you love so much, you wish you'd written it.
5: <laughs> I mean, it's probably almost cliche. And I don't really wish I would have written it because I don't, I think you would have to do a lot of hard drugs to be able to write it. <laughs> but Jesus' Son is special to me, uh, Dennis Johnson. I think a lot of people like it a lot. But I I would like to be able to write it. But also, I'm pretty glad I, I can never write that book either.
0: Nana Kwame Ajibrenya on why he's glad he couldn't have written his favorite book and his own tale of love and fighting chain gang all-stars. So, Sara, we are staying inside, as it were,
1: well, we're kind of traveling back to the past, really, because when I went in search of great prison novels, I was reminded that there are rather a lot of historical ones. So top of the list, we've got one of those. It's Affinity by Sarah Waters, oh, which wow. I think is the second Sarah Waters I've recommended on the podcast. But no surprise, really, because she's so consistently good. I could actually just give a blanket recommendation, read all of her novels, especially if you like A Tinge of the Gothic. And this one is the most gothic of them all. Um, so it's set in London in the 1870s when a gentlewoman begins visiting the female inmates at Millbank Prison. Now, ostensibly, this is supposed to have an improving effect on them, but instead she becomes desperately intrigued by a medium named Selina Dawes, who's in for murder, and then she's drawn into a plot to help her escape. From there, she unravels, and the book also unravels, into this hugely atmospheric, intricate, Tense, incredibly tense novel that reads a bit like The Love Child of Wilkie Collins and One of the Bronte's. Definitely highly recommend.
0: Okay, thanks for that. Uh, Your second choice, please.
1: Right. Well, if I had gone dystopian, The Handmaid's Tale would obviously have been top of the list. So including this next one feels a little bit like Justice for Maggie, not that she needs it. It's Alias Grace, and I know that Quite rightly, this has been a book of the week before on, I think it was series two of the podcast, but for anyone who did not read it back then, this is me telling you, you should definitely read it now. This one is firmly historical. It's set in Canada and it's loosely based on the true story of Grace Marks, who was convicted in 1843 of murdering her employer and his housekeeper. And Atwood kind of picks up on the hints in the record that Grace Marks was insane and believed herself possessed by the spirit of her dead friend, Mary Whitney. And she has great fun with this, imagining Grace giving her version of events from prison to a visiting psychiatrist in a way that becomes kind of ever more lurid and spiked with sexual tension, so much so that it sort of ends up driving him mad also. Um, And it's also remarkably erudite. So there's a lot of interesting discourse on the pseudosciences of that era and the collision of spiritualism and psychiatry, which I found really absorbing.
0: Okay, and the final title you're recommending?
1: Right. Well, because we've been so stuck in the past, I think I have to round the list off with at least one contemporary novel. And I'm going for The Mars Room by Rachel Kushner, which was published in 2018. Um, So I went back and forth about recommending this because it is pretty damn bleak. But the reason I stuck with it and the reason why I think it's worth reading is that it kind of mitigates its own sadness. Um on a sentence level, because it is so beautifully written that it sort of rescues itself. It is more about psychological violence than physical violence, because what it does is give you a perspective on this very diverse cast of women through the eyes of the central character who's serving two life sentences for murdering her stalker. They're all in prison, but their lives outside have been so marginalized that prison feels like the kind of logical end of a horrible process for them. And the thing that is, especially moving is how this novel gives you a very clear sense of the mental torture, especially of being separated from their children and unable to mother, which has absolutely stayed with me. It's a really tender, really humane novel, but it is so immersive that you do have to kind of brace yourself for feeling a bit like you've been in prison for a few hundred pages. And I know that will not be everyone's cup of tea.
0: Thank you so much, Sarah, and if you've been too busy binge-watching reruns of Prisoner Cell Block H to note down the books you mention, don't worry. Just visit the Amazon Audible website, search for The Graham Norton Book Club, and you'll find our webpage, and all of the books we talk about will be right there. Okay, let's unleash our Chain Gang All-Stars. Here to flash their weapons are part-time librarian and full-time phone salesman, Jeff Watson. Hello. Hello. Fashion writer, Ladies Lit Squad founder and northerner in the South, Sheree Millington. Hello. Junior doctor and library enthusiast, Varshini Vijaykumar. Hi, Graham. And former teacher, now social worker and timeline maker, Gavern Bennett, who chose the book for us. So, Gavirne, what is it about Chain Gang All-Stars that appeal to you so much?
3: Well, normally when people choose books on it, well, most of the clubs, we normally have profound reasons, right? But I chose it for completely shallow reasons. When I first saw the book cover, I liked it initially. When I read it, it the opening, you can't forget the opening. So I thought at least Mustard clubs won't be bored. But also, I had this kind of feeling that the last time I had this feeling is like when I first read Ian Banks and I first read Zadie Smith. And it was a feeling of like, what the hell is this book? What's going on here? And I, I recommended it to someone else. And they came up with this really powerful reaction. like "What the hell? And then somebody else came and said they loved it. So I thought, okay. And generally, I'm dystopian out, people, to be honest with you. Hunger Games, Squid Games, Hunger Squiddy Games. But this, I thought, okay, this is interesting. Why has somebody not actually put all these elements together? But I'm curious to hear what everyone thinks. And I hope most of the listeners and everybody will, will get around to reading it.
0: All right, let's find out what, what people did think. Uh, Varshney, we'll start with you. Did you enjoy Chain Gang All-Stars?
6: Yeah, so thank you so much for re- recommending it, Gavin. because I, I don't know if I would have picked it up otherwise. I haven't read a book like this in a long time, I think. And I feel similarly to you in that I feel like there's a lot of dystopian fiction, but this feels really different to me. A lot of dystopian fiction kind of draws on things that have already happened to other groups of people. So like The Handmaid's Tale, for example, is like really draws on a lot of violence that was done to black enslaved women and indigenous women in America, and pulls it to a a future setting after something's been destabilised. But this feels really rooted in the now.
0: Okay, Uh, Jeff, uh, did you enjoy the the idea of being rooted in the now? Did did it seem realistic to you?
7: Okay, so basically I loved this book and I hated this book. The rooted in the now and the stuff about uh, the American criminal justice system and death row prisoners, etc., I absolutely loved that. But I absolutely hated the violence... If I hadn't been reading it for this, I would have actually put it down after page one. Maybe I'm just a little snowflake. I don't know, but I just didn't <laughs> like the violence. Uh,
0: Sheree, this doesn't seem like a, a natural fit for you.
7: Do I
2: not seem like a fighter? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I I wouldn't have picked it up. I'm glad that I read it. I agree with you, Jeff. I loved it and I hated yeah. it. The concept is so novel. I can see it being made into a movie franchise. It's got an element of kind of like the X-Men or something. But I found it very difficult to read because reading about fighting is not as exciting as looking or watching fighting. But I love the characters and I thought it's such a clever concept.
0: And what do you think, of Erin?
2: Are we supposed to enjoy
0: the fight scenes?
3: OK, I hate to say this uh, because, you know, I've got friends that like MMA and violence and I did find the violence difficult but that's why I think this novel works is because I thought to myself, would I actually watch this thing? And if I'm being honest with you, if that was like around and all my friends are going on and on about it, I might sneak watch it. There's a bit of me that might be like, okay, what's what's going on here? And this is what it might actually look like.
0: I mean, it's a really interesting question. If there was a really violent version of Love Island, partially, <laughs> are you tuning in?
6: Um, I am pretty partial to Love Island, I won't lie. <laughs> If it was a fight to the death to find your partner, I don't know if I'd be staying staying on it. Um. I, hope, I
0: hope ITV aren't listening to this. <laughs> uh, and Jeff, you wouldn't. Yeah.
6: But is, isn't that
0: kind of the point of the book, that it's supposed to kind of, you know, build up your relationship with these people so you don't enjoy the idea of them feeling pain or having to kill people?
7: Yeah, but I, I, the whole sort of the violence bit actually just made me queasy. But at the same time, the other aspects of the book were very, very positive. Uh, I mean, one of the reasons I read is because it kind of like fires my imagination and sort of promotes me onto other things. And on the back of reading this book, I've read lots of other books about uh, the criminal system and listened to some podcasts that are out at the moment about that.
2: I do think that the point about the prison system it's. Great, great to learn about that. But the footnotes in the book, it took me out of it. It was like reading a novel and then also a textbook about <laughs> the American prison system at the same time. Oh, see, I found those fascinating. Anybody else enjoy them?
6: I found them really good. Honestly, I was amazed in the interview that he said that he didn't write set out to write a book about the prison system because...
0: I know, that was extraordinary, wasn't it?
6: To me, it's so focused around the critique at so many different levels that having those real world examples and the kind of like satirised... Chain gang, All Stars World examples of, I suppose the way that private prison companies work and various people who've been let down by the justice system, really hammer in some of the points in the book.
0: I um, asked a, a question uh, to Nana about love in the book.
3: Did you? Which he loved.
6: He loved it actually, didn't he? He said he loved yeah. it. Yeah, no, he did. He
0: gave you a big shout yeah. out. <laughs> <and he laughs> like, oh, <laughs> all right, <Gavern." laughs>
3: uh, But I wanted to read. What
0: did you think of that central relationship? Uh, between uh, Stax and and Thorwar,
2: I found those two women very inspiring. Got me down to the gym, I'll tell you. But it's great (laughs) to see strong black female characters and queer characters. I did think that maybe the author tried a bit too hard to make them seem really cool and woke. I found that a bit belaboured. And Sara, what what did you think
0: of the the love story at the centre of this book?
1: Well, it's interesting because I... Closed this book feeling like it could have been a brilliant novel if I had believed in the love between Loretta and Hurricane before that final scene. But I had this lingering sense that we were always being told about the love but we were never shown it. And I think part of it is that reading the book is this sort of visceral experience of violence. So it does what it's designed to do, which is to desensitise you to the violence. But then that completely obliterates the humanity of the characters. And I think in order to believe in the love story, you have to first connect with the humanity of the people who are involved in it. And uh,
0: uh, Varshini, were you emotionally involved in this? Did you find bits of it upsetting or was it just a, a good story well told?
6: I think both of the two main leads are really interestingly nuanced characters and I think especially Stax, the way that like from her like first entry when she starts like screaming about loving everyone and like she kills someone and then tells him while she's killing him that she loves him and then getting more of her story and understanding how she'd got into this position and understanding her relationships with the other characters I was quite emotionally invested by the end of it I was pretty shocked by the ending that's why I give the book credit, because there's all this brain and murder going on.
3: People talk about love all the time. <laughs> the reason why the love worked for me is because that is what might happen in this kind of intense situation. The assumption is everything would just become more and more hostile. But the idea it kind of slipped to the other, the other side made me think, OK, you know, yeah. What, what, what would drive you to keep going in that situation, to get up in the morning when you're facing something like that? Something like Love might do that. I mean, it sounds strange given the context of the novel, but I just respect the fact that the author was able to get away with it, you know, and I didn't just put the book down and say, well, You'll to with Romeo and Juliet in the middle of a, a gladiatorial contest.
7: For me, I thought the, uh, the love story between the two main characters was actually very believable in as much as they're kind mm-hmm. of like on a version of Big Brother. And one thing that actually drew people into watching Big Brother, especially in the wee small hours, was for movement under the sheets. And so I think that <laughs> uh, that would actually be something that would be encouraged by... Uh, the producers of the story, because it would pull people into it.
0: Um, I also want to talk about the the climax of the book is set up very early on. So the whole book is working towards this big set piece at the end. How did that work for everyone? Was it satisfying? Um, I'll start with you, Varshney.
6: Fifty pages from the end of this book, I still had no idea how it was going to end. I don't know if anyone else felt the same, but I've, I've not read a book in a long time that's kept that level of suspense and that level of, like, uncertainty towards the end. I think it ended very abruptly, is all I'll say about it. But I think the situation that all of the characters are in of living in a very violent and, you know, oppressive regime in which they're competing, there isn't going to be, like, a, a satisfying ending. And Shree,
0: talk to me about the ending. It should be wildly upsetting
6: not for me
2: um, <laughs> these two characters are lovers and one's got to come out on top but because i dedicate so much time to the book i did want someone to win and quite <laughs> i wanted a resolution where one person got out of the chain gang and the ending didn't give us that So, yeah, I don't know how I feel about that, but there was a lot of suspense. I definitely was kind of on the edge of my seat. And then I had to go back and read it again because I wasn't quite sure what had happened. And I don't know if I am sure what what happened.
0: Uh, Sarah, you were going to say something.
2: So I
1: do want to say that I think there were glimmers of greatness in this novel and um, that he is definitely a novelist to watch. He is a writer of immense talent. It's obvious on every page. But... It caused me to think about the reading experiences that I've enjoyed in this kind of genre, like The Handmaid's Tale and 1984, you know, top of everyone's list. And the secret to those novels, which is that you meet the people first and you care about them before you find out what's happening to them. And that only happens sort of superficially here.
0: It's time to find out how likely people are to recommend this book to a friend. Uh, I'll start with you, Cherie, out of 10.
2: Oh, it's a difficult one. As I say, I did find it a bit difficult, but I would say an 8. Oh, wow. It's such an interesting story. And also having those strong black female characters and the way they're objectified and vilified and lauded, just so, so interesting. So, yeah, give it a go. All
0: right, strong 8 from Cherie. Jeff? Oh, I knew you were going to ask me.
5: Right, okay. There's only four of you. Yeah, I know, I know, I know, I know.
7: I've been wondering about where to place this for ever since I actually started reading it. I would give it a five, and that's basically just because of the level of violence in it. However... At the same time, I am actually going to be putting it on the shelves at the Lit and Fill, Mm. uh, the library that I work in, so that uh, it will be available for people to borrow and form their own opinions.
6: Okay, that sounds like more (laughs)
7: than a five, but you know, okay, we'll stick with five. Varshini?
6: So I'm going to give it a 10. It's a really ambitious novel, and this is his first novel as well, but I think it's really well realised and... I think he pulls it off. So, yeah, it's a 10 for me.
0: All right. And finally, Gavirne, uh, what are you giving it?
3: I'm gobsmacked because most books I recommend on here, I've been machine gunned.
6: <laughs> Come on, here. <yeah.
3: laughs> uh, so, actually, I'm going to give it a 9 out of 10. And I would give it to someone, but I'd say, listen, this potentially could be the Uncle Tom's Cabin of the 21st century, right? Mm. I'm giving you a heads up here. Yeah. Read this. You might not like the violence or what have you, but it will make you look cool in the future because you'd be able to say you read it in 2023 before it, it got really, really big.
0: All right. Thank you very much for discussing Chain Gang All-Stars. Time to find out what we're reading next time. And I think it's the turn of Cherie to recommend a
6: book.
2: Um, This is Such a Fun Age by Kylie Reed, And it's her debut novel. And it's about a young black girl who gets into trouble for an incident um, in a shopping centre where someone thinks she's stolen a white child. She is, in fact, that child's nanny. And that kicks off the whole book. But it's about being young. It's about romance. It's about being a young black woman in America, but just really well-written. And I loved it when I first read it.
0: Sounds like a great premise. We look forward to talking about Such a Fun Age by Kylie Reed next time. Uh, thank you very much, everybody. Talk to you along the way. Hi. Hi. Bye. Thanks, Thanks. Right, you
4: heard him at the beginning of the podcast. Now he's back. I can count on one hand the number of journalists who listened to me, described my acting goals and said something like Ivan Reitman did just 10 years later. You know, I can see it. I can see it clearly. Very few people said anything like that. The rest either smirked and rolled their eyes, or they openly laughed at the idea. Even some of the people standing around and watching, like the photographers or the camera people, they laughed too. You can hear it on some of the videos of those interviews that still exist. But I didn't get mad. I welcomed their doubts. I wanted to hear them laugh when I said that I wanted to be an actor. It fueled me. I needed it.
0: Arnold Schwarzenegger won the Mr. Universe bodybuilding competition when he was 20. Then he became a huge Hollywood star, playing roles from Conan the Barbarian to The Terminator to Kindergarten Cop. In 2003, he was elected Governor of California and remained in office till 2011. Now, he's gathered up all the lessons he's learned over the course of his several illustrious careers and put them in a book. Be useful. Seven tools for life. And with one of the most distinctive voices in the world, how could he not do the audiobook? We caught up with him in the Loose Women dressing room at London's Television Centre. Where else? And I started with the audiobook recording process itself.
4: I think that it was very difficult for me to do that. First of all, because I'm not a real good reader. You know, so I'm a little bit dyslexic. And so to me, I have to kind of rehearse things a, a few times in order to do it so that it takes much more time than when you do that. But then the most difficult thing was to find the tone because I didn't want to kind of read something formally. You know, when you write something, you write it more grammatically correct, uh, not the way I talk. So that was kind of weird for me to all of a sudden talk more formal even though it's my, supposed to be my own words in the book. But, I thought, but
0: you did a very, the, you, I thought you did a very good job of making it sound
4: conversational. No, no, I, look, I worked on it very hard. It took me two weeks. I worked straight two weeks. Every day I worked on it for two hours in the morning and two hours in the afternoon to to read these things and to read sometimes. And I had this woman that is the... I didn't even know there's such a thing as a producer of the audiobook. <laughs> you know, I, I had no idea. So, so You'll be thrilled this, to hear it. There that. was this woman... <laughs> And uh, so she was on the iPad, uh, she was on, on, on Zoom, and she corrected me. And I would just uh, say a paragraph, and she says, let's do that beginning again. She says, it was lovely the way you did that, but uh, I would like to see a little bit more strength in that sentence. You know, and so she was uh, just like a director in a yeah. movie. And you listen to them because that's why you have them. And this is why I always say there's no such thing as a self-made man because we all need help. Yeah. You know, and so this was really fantastic to have it there and to help me along and to be able to finish the book and to read it. Now, this is a bad thing to say, but so many
0: people impersonate you. Were you not at all tempted to get someone else in to
4: do the audiobook? book? Absolutely. Uh, but the, the thing is, well, first of all, you can do AI. You know, AI <laughs> well, yes. has figured out already how to do that, but... I did not want to cheat the audience. The bottom line is, I felt that the people put up money to buy the book, and so I felt like I should do it, I should put the effort in. I wrote the book, it took me three months to put my thoughts together and to write it all up, and then I did it. Yeah. And uh, So I, I feel much better when I am honest with the people, because yeah. remember one thing. The thing that made me an international movie star was not me, it's the audience. If I don't have the audience packing the theatres, I can never be a star. So the people made me. Yeah. And the same is in politics. I always say I didn't make myself governor. It was 5.8 million people that voted for me. They are responsible for me being governor. There's so many people that always help me, and I always give them credit for that.
0: So because of your huge success doing all these various things in your life, you've always been this kind of inspirational figure, and I know you've given speeches and inspirational talks. When did you figure out that you could mold it into rules?
4: Well, I always had those rules, and it was just they never really articulated it that much until they started doing commencement speeches for universities after their graduation to pump up the students and to let them know, Here's what I've learned in life. So here's what you need to do. And so I gave them the rules. So sometimes it was four rules. It depends how long they wanted (laughs) me to speak, right? And sometimes it was six rules, sometimes seven rules, sometimes ten rules. Then uh, they became very successful. And then I started getting on the speaker circuit around the world. And I thought they would want me to talk about the environment or to talk about my governorship and all this. Like, you know, ex-presidents do. They go around on the speaker circuit. But they wanted me to give them motivational speeches. And so I did more and more of that until people started really putting the pressure on me and saying, you should write a book about it, a motivational book. And then I wrote this book.
0: And writing the book, was it kind of fully formed in your mind, these seven rules, or did it happen as you were I would writing say
4: I would say semi-formed. I had to kind of collect the different ideas because I didn't want to say the same things in the book as I say in my speeches. But it is exactly the rules that I think are absolutely crucial for someone to be more successful. And there's a basic rules that maybe some people already know but they don't know how valuable they are. Yeah, and also I think it's interesting
0: that people measure
4: success in different ways. Yeah, yeah, I mean, when I talk about success, it's kind of like, what is your goal? I mean, if your goal is, for instance, to just uh, be a better husband, to be a better father, make a little bit more money, anything that makes you happy and it makes you satisfied and makes you reach your goal is success. The important thing is that we have a goal. And this is what I talk about in the book. You have to have a clear vision I, from the time I was a young kid, I had a clear vision that I wanted to become a bodybuilding champion. And so that was the vision that I had chased. And it was so much fun to go to the gym and to work out hours and hours a day. Everyone else was kind of complaining about, oh, I have to do another squat and have another deadlift and another bench. press." I said, I'm looking forward to it because every rep that I do would take me one step closer." To reach my goal. And yeah. so that was the bottom line. And so I used that principle with everything. Even when I went into movies, I saw myself as another Clint Eastwood, as another Charles Bronson, one of those action heroes. And I wanted to make the millions of dollars like they do. And so that was my dream, even though everyone said it can't be done, it's impossible. And that's why I also put in there in a book, Don't Listen to the naysayers. naysayers. Because every single time I had a dream about anything, or I had a gore about anything, people said it's impossible. So I wanted to let people know, don't listen to the naysayers. Because like Nelson Mandela said, anything is always impossible until someone does it. And it is absolutely true. Uh, Very quickly, we just want to talk about your life with books.
1: I'm
0: guessing as a youngster, you didn't read books. You were in the gym, you were being active the whole time.
4: Well, I did read, uh, you know, small books that we were told to read because we had to write a report for yeah. school and stuff like that. But not, it was not a natural thing for me. I was much more a visual person. Yeah. And I learned much more through visual things, you know, through movies and documentaries and stuff like that. And later in life, did you read memoirs or anything yeah, like yeah, that? Yeah, no, absolutely. Not, especially when I got involved in in policy and stuff like that, I started reading political books and Ronald Reagan's book and Mandela's book and Clinton's book and others' books, of course you do that, but I mean in history books, I'm not one of those people like my father-in-law, he read one book a week and uh, he was extremely smart with policy and all this, you know, Sergeant Shriver I'm talking about, he was one of my mentors, him and George Bush actually, they turned me on to politics, why I was interested at all, eventually to run for office.
0: And final question, is there a book that you recommend to people? Is
4: there a book you tell people you must read this? Well, book this for is your own. No, you, have to, you, you, you have to say, first of all, your own. Be, be, be useful, I think, is the book that I would recommend very highly. But, I mean, it really depends what you're into. Yeah. I don't want to say to someone, read Nelson Mandela's book, and you're not interested in policy or in this kind of a history or anything like that, I don't want to recommend us read Ronald Reagan's book and about his philosophy and how he was able to bring parties together and not be one of those wacky Republicans that we have today and all of that stuff. So it really depends on the individual what they want to read.
0: Arnold Schwarzenegger on bringing to life his life lessons in Be Useful. It is nearly time for the final showdown, but before we do that, who do I see entering the arena? It is audiobook insider and chart maven Holly Newson, armed with her vital statistics about what's going up and down in the book charts. Holly, who is on the rise?
8: Well, this one is a massive big hitter. Barbara Kingsolver's novel Demon Copperhead has been high on the overall chart for a while and on most read fiction, And it was on the most sold fiction chart for a really long time too. For good reason. It was the co-recipient of the 2023 Pulitzer Prize for Fiction and won the 2023 UK Women's Prize for Fiction. Now, in terms of plot and characters, it's got lots of similarities with Dickens' David Copperfield basically a modern retelling. So of course, it looks at themes of poverty, but also adds in some other contemporary issues. Um, Now, after it won the Women's Prize in July, the publisher ordered a massive rerun of 55,000 reprints. And their expected demand very much seems to have come to life. Um, Also, it's not the first time that Barbara's won the Women's Prize. Her other win was in 2010 for the Lacuna. So she is the first person to win it twice.
0: Actually, I read The Laguna and really enjoyed it. I think Sarah recommended this one on our Three of the Best a few weeks ago, so must read that. Uh, next up, what's our one to watch?
8: So the audiobook of How They Broke Britain by James O'Brien is my one to watch, as it has entered the most sold non-fiction chart. James is a forthright radio presenter who a lot of people will have come across on social media, if not on the radio, as depending on who you ask, he can be quite polarising. I have absolutely no idea what will happen in politics between time of recording and this going out. So I'll just say that the book talks through the failings of some people who are or once were in British government.
0: (laughs) Well, on current form, (laughs) Uh, really hard to predict. So uh, keep all this vague. Uh, What is the final hint?
8: Well, finally, the sort of thing I love to see on the biography chart, an autobiography of a fictional character. Alan Partridge. Um, the audiobook of Big Beacon is doing so well, including on the Audible chart and most sold nonfiction chart. It's also a number one bestseller in memorials and monuments, which I think Alan would love. Um, <laughs> has some explanation to that categorisation, by the way, um, Alan does restore an old lighthouse in this book. Um, and just in case it needs saying, the book is, of course, actually by Steve Coogan.
0: Of course it is. Uh, Holly, thank you so much. Uh, Don't forget, you can find details of all the books we talk about on our webpage. Just search for The Graham Norton Book Club on Amazon or Audible, and all the information you need will be right there. Our book clubbers have gone off to find their tools for life, starting with a key safe for Cherie and some chicken wire for Gavern. So it just remains for me to thank Sarah Collins, for being is so very useful this time around. Sarah Collins, thank you so much.
1: Thank you. I'm going to have to go look for a tool for life. And I think the one I will need, um, ASAP, is one that will enable me to interview six people in one <laughs> night coming up.
0: Good luck with all your interviews. Uh, Just to remind you that this series of the Graham Norton Book Club podcast is available on Audible or wherever you get your podcasts. Just click follow and you won't miss a show, which means you'll definitely join us next time when our book is Kylie Reed's Such a Fun Age and co-host of hit podcast The Rest is Politics, Rory Stewart, will introduce us to his politics on the edge. Till then, happy reading and listening
1: and Goodbye. Goodbye.